The thrill and excitement of March Mania is here, and DraftKings Sportsbook, one of America's top-rated sportsbook apps, is giving new customers a shot to turn 5 bucks into $150 instantly in bonus bets with any college basketball bet. You can find all the lines and available odds, of course, at the DraftKings Sportsbook app. North Carolina listeners, don't forget, DraftKings Sportsbook is now live in your state. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app and use code SBNFL. New customers can bet 5 bucks to get $150 instantly in bonus bonus bets only at DraftKings Sportsbook with code SBNFL. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 8778-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash bball for eligibility, deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. Welcome to Hallis the Mac, Chicago Bears history by the decade. I'm Jeff Burkus, a writer for Windy City Gridiron, and I'm partnering up for this special podcast series with lifelong Bears fan and historian Matt Winter. Matt, the U.S. celebrates its 200th birthday. It's the 1970s. And they said we would never get this far. A little country that could, 200 years in the making, and let's see where the 70s takes us for the Bears, Jeff. I'm guessing <laughs> it's not a, that great of a place. It's uh, It's not good. So... <laughs> We'll get to that. Uh, we got to start off with the cocktail of the decade like we have for all of our shows. And for the 70s, I I don't know if the drinks are all that good, but the names are phenomenal. Well, let's hear them. So the Pink Squirrel comes out of the <laughs> 1970s. The Harvey Wallbanger comes out of the 1970s. But I stumbled across an entire family of drinks and nomenclature of those drinks that I think that you might actually like the drinks, but they have some interesting innuendo in their names. Okay. So at some point in the 1970s, someone decided that they would take the simple screwdriver, which I think most people know is just vodka and orange juice, mm-hmm. and they would swap. They swapped out the vodka with slow gin. So slow gin, okay. slow gin is a liqueur that is made from taking gin and then also putting slow berries into it. Have you ever had this? I've never had slow gin. I, or at least I, I don't know if I have. I usually just drink regular Tangeray, but th- I, this sounds like something I want to try. I think you would know if you had this. So I, I, I got a drink for you, and then I've got some <laughs> additional recipes. So, so here's a drink for you, Matt. Okay. It's called the Slow Screw, hmm. and it's one and a half parts of slow gin and one part of dry gin, and then you want to pour that over ice. Uh, and fill it up with orange juice. Stir it. You're good to go. Very simple drink. That sounds really good. So, so here's the fun part with the nomenclature, is that people kept adding more and more different liquors and adding onto the name. So, if you wanted to do a slow, comfortable screw, <laughs> <laughs> that would be Southern Comfort and bourbon instead of the dry gin and still you would use the slow gin a slow comfortable screw against the wall Hmm. that would be replacing the dry gin with soco 
and Galliano, which is the key ingredient of that Harvey Wallbanger. Uh, the longest variation that I could find of this drink was called the Slow Comfortable Screw Against a Cold Hard Wall with a Kiss. <laughs> so my fiancé prefers. Uh, I, yeah, okay, TMI. But basically how you make this is you take slow gin and OJ as the base. You're going to add the Southern Comfort or SoCo as uh, kids used to call it when we were in college. You're going to put a float, which means basically it's like a a quarter of an ounce that you apply with like a uh, pouring it over like a spoon right over the top of the the drink. Uh, So you're going to put a float of Amaretto, Galliano, and Overproof Rum. Amaretto is the kiss. I don't know why Amaretto stands for kiss in this situation, but it is. There's a lot of variations. Uh, If you use tequila, of course, you know, it's just put Mexican in front of it. So, you know, if you want a a Mexican slow, comfortable screw, you'd have tequila in it. I assume you could make an Irish variation if you put Jameson in it. I don't know. Uh, They all seem a little bit ridiculous to me, but again, maybe they have their place. Uh, Everything I read that said this was a good brunch drink, and I think that's probably about right. You know, the orange juice and a lot of different liquors, but definitely a very interesting <laughs> set of drinks here. Let us know if even you've if, ever tried them. Uh, and, even if the drinks are good, Jeff, they're just fun to say and good conversation starters. Could you imagine ordering that at brunch? With uh, my single days with an attractive bartender, <laughs> sure. I'm, Absolutely. I'm sure that would have went swimmingly for you. So... All right, I wanted to start off with that because I thought maybe it gets a chuckle from you guys because there's not a lot of good times in the 1970s for the Bears. So what I want to do is kind of catch you up on the league first, and then we'll get into a a simply dreadful decade for for Bears history. But it does start to look better by the end of the decade. We'll we'll get into all that. But I promise you guys a, a recap of the AFL and why that's important because by the end of the 1960s and start of the 70s, uh, the leagues have merged. So AFL kicks off in 1960 with eight teams. It's the Houston Oilers, the New York Titans, Buffalo Bills, Boston Patriots, and their Eastern Division, the LA Chargers, Dallas Texans, Oakland Raiders, and the Denver Broncos in the West. So AFL uses a different ball. It's uh, really easy for the quarterback to grip and rip it. Uh, It's a more wide-open passing game. AFL games were kind of seen as kind of fun and it's just more offense less defense kind of sounds like a pack yeah a big 12 game or something 1961 chargers move out of la they go to san diego 63 the texans move up to kansas city uh, and they change their name to the chiefs and then new york in the same year changes their name to the jets so that's where those teams get their start uh, in terms of the current iteration In 66, the Dolphins are added as an expansion team. And in 68, those Bengals, uh, those, you know, (laughs) those poor Bengals come in in 68 as the other expansion team. So in 1970, AFL and NFL combine. So the AFL brings in 10 teams while the NFL has 16. So to balance things out, three NFL teams need to go over to the American Football Conference or AFC while the 13 remaining original NFL teams will be in the National Football Conference, or NFC. When I was looking at this, I was surprised that some of the more recent expansion teams didn't go over uh, to the AFC. Uh, And so I I wonder exactly what the deals were that happened. But the Steelers 
uh, the Browns and the Colts are the teams that go from the NFC, the you know the original NFL over to the AFC. So those Colts, and again, like you know, they just kind of get bounced around. Conferences at this point are divided into three divisions: the East, the Central, and the West. So the Bears get to stick to stick to the Central, of course, and the NFC Central division is the name that you know you and I both grew up with uh, well before the NFC North. Those three divisional winners make the playoffs, and then one wild card from each conference make the playoffs. So there's two rounds of playoff games before the Super Bowl. So we're in the 70s, 1971, Boston Patriots, they become the New England Patriots. They don't say Boston Patriots for very long in the NFL. In 70- so was there a reason they switched from Boston to New England? I don't know. I guess they got they just have the entire market of those six states. You know, there's no other teams up there, so I guess they just kind of wanted to represent the entire region. But I know that their stadium now does not is not really that close to Boston. It's quite the drive away, and so that might be part of it too. Is that they weren't Hmm. really playing their games like in true Boston downtown or anything. So in '76, the Seahawks and the Buccaneers are expansion teams. They're terrible. The Bucks go 0-14. You know, there's there's some fun stuff about them. Seattle's not much better. They're 2-12, and but, you know, at least they're better than the Bucks. The the Buccaneers in 76, they're put in the AFC West. <laughs> and so I, why, why are the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in the AFC West? I don't know. The Seahawks were in the NFC West in 1976. And then, again, I don't get some of this stuff, but in, one year later in 77, the Bucks are moved to the NFC Central. Still doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but okay. Uh, better than the West. And then the Seahawks are moved from the NFC to the AFC West. So the Seahawks were actually in the AFC for quite a while. Uh, 1978, NFL moves to a 16-game schedule. So they also changed the playoff format was with that. Basically put in a playoff game between two wildcard teams. So you still have the three division winners, but they added like a play-in game between these two wildcard teams to to play into the first round, which I can't find so kind three, of bizarre. So three teams would get a first round bye, basically. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a good way to look at it. Or kind of like the NCAA basketball tournament where there's those play-in games. Mm, uh, yes. That's kind of how I was thinking of it. Or maybe the baseball. Uh, it's probably actually the the format that MLB has where you've got the two wildcard teams that play in for that fourth spot. Mm-hmm. So the Bears record, 60, 83, and 1. It is the worst record by decade in the history of this franchise. It's, it's, just, it's just not good. It's the only decade in which the Bears don't at least win a division championship. You know, they do make the playoffs uh, as a wildcard team in 77 and in 79. So, you know, again, things are working out a little bit towards the end. But they do finish last in the division six years in this decade. So, ugh, just a terrible decade. Bears coaches. So, Jim Dooley, he took over for Hallis in 68. He was a former player and assistant coach. He only lasts for four seasons uh, through 1971. He's a miserable 20 and 36. So not a good record. And I I wonder if at the time, like Hallis, like if the newspaper's like, well, maybe Hallis will come back again. Uh, but he did not. Dooley was replaced by Abe Gibron, another former player and assistant. And he's actually far worse so he lasts (laughs) (laughs) yeah so he lasts three terrible seasons and his record is 11 30 and one man so he's gone jack party comes in big improvement jack party uh brings 
you know, a lot of improvement to this team. He only lasts three years. He's, he has a losing record. It's 20 and 22, but he does have a playoff appearance, uh, which is the first time that the Bears see the postseason since 1963. He's gone after the last that. championship year. Yes, exactly. So, and again, like playoffs weren't necessarily, you know, an expanded format until now, but you know, whatever. It's it's not a good, it's it's a dry spell. Let's put it that way. So he's gone after that season, and he's replaced by Neil Armstrong, uh, Neil with two L's, not the astronaut, of course. And he's replaced by him in 1978. Armstrong lasts four seasons into the 1981 season. He finishes his career with a 30 and 34 record, with uh, the only playoff appearance in his career in 1979. So all four coaches that coached at least one season in the 1970s, finished their time in Chicago with a losing record. Wow. And after that, though, we get the coach. We do get the coach, and we'll save him for the next time. But I want to mention one thing. This is kind of my (laughs) not-so-fun trivia fact for the decade, but it comes to coaches, and that's George Allen. He was an assistant coach for Hallis from 59 to 65. So Hallis's plan was to step aside and let George Allen take over because Hallis knew that he, he could see him. He knew he was a good coach. And so he kept him around and kind of promised him that he was going to take over for him. Hallis held on to the job uh, for 66 and 67 after Allen left. And I have to imagine, as we talked about in the last episode, it was because he saw Sayers and Buckus. He hit on those two draft picks and felt like, well, maybe, you know, hey, I just won coach of the year. Maybe I, maybe I still got it. Maybe I can come back. But the result was George Allen leaves Chicago. He coaches, he's head coach for the Rams and then also Washington. And he compiles a head coaching mark of 116, 47, and 5. He never has a losing season in 12 years. And over that same time, the Bears are 63, 101, and 4 with only one winning season. So it's kind of that one of those what ifs. What if Hallis really would have just handed it over to George Allen? But what about U.S. history during this decade? Not a great decade for U.S. history. We were celebrating the bicentennial, and that's all great. But Vietnam War is still going on, and it's going to last throughout a decent chunk of the decade. Finally, that comes to an end, though. You have the presidency of richard nixon which of course in scandal free of course well yeah for almost a two-year span there's the the watergate scandal looming over him and as everyone knows eventually he resigns gerald ford takes over you have it like i said before the war ending you have a landmark supreme court case in roe v wade the voting age gets lowered to 18 during this time that's early in the decade Maybe some more positive things. You have Saturday Night Live debuts in 1975, a show that is still on today. HBO gets formed during this decade. Uh, Towards the end of the decade, Jimmy Carter is president. Things aren't great economically. There's a recession in 75, 76, and then you have an energy crisis in the late 70s. And Jimmy Carter is wearing sweaters, telling people to turn down their thermostats, just not inspiring a lot of confidence. Just uh, not a great decade in a lot of ways. The fashion is still carrying over from the late 60s. You've got bell bottoms, you've got flowing maxi dresses, you have people with frayed jeans, you got colorful colors. Just, you know, not my favorite decade <laughs> out of everything. Right. By the, by, for prices, by the end of the decade, you can get a house for 60 k Average job pays you around 18k a year. 
Gas is about 85 cents a gallon, and a new car will cost you $6,000. So now to some fun stuff for the decade, Jeff. Pick one. Okay. Here are the top movies of the decade. Rocky, Dirty Harry, Alien, Star Wars, The Godfather, Jaws, or The Extra. Jaws is a great movie, but i got to go to The Godfather. Probably the best movie ever made. Godfather, definitely a classic. I'm going to go with Star Wars, though, just for the cultural impact. For music, you got Simon and Garfunkel, Fleetwood Mac, The Bee Gees, Eagles, Pink Floyd, Rolling Stones, or I even threw in the Grease soundtrack. I know you're a big fan of musicals, Jeff. <laughs> oh, yeah, you, you really, really nailed that. You know, in my household, there was a lot of Pink Floyd being played. And so I'm going to have to retain Pink Floyd. What about you? Great choice for Pink Floyd. I'm going the Eagles, though. Music is timeless. Now, for TV, uh, uh, I don't know what people did in the 70s. This seems pretty <laughs> dull to me. Brady Bunch, Charlie's Angels, Happy Days, Jefferson's, MASH, The Waltons, and Welcome Back, Cotter. Who are you taking? MASH was on the TV a lot growing up. Big Hawkeye family. So I'm, I have to go MASH. I'm going MASH 2. That is the only show on there. Well, I didn't mind Welcome Back, Cotter. I think that was on Nickelodeon growing up. But I'm definitely going MASH. And that's pretty much the decade, Jeff. A really, really dull, not that fun decade. <laughs> I'm wondering what uh, my mom would say about that since she was a child of the 70s, graduated high school in the 70s. So we'll, we'll hear it from her, no doubt. <laughs> <laughs> well, key players of this decade, and here's the thing. Okay, it's a it's a crap decade, right? Like, this is not a good team. But there are some really interesting players in this decade, which is kind of makes it even more sad for some of these guys that played on these teams and never really found a, a lot of winning clubs. But a lot of really interesting players. There's really zero carryover from the 60s. Like, there's just not... The guys are retiring by, like, 1970, 1972. And there's just no real carryover of, like, really key players. And so you kind of see why the cupboard was so bare. But let's let's start... Have you started off with a guy that you are fascinated with, and that's Bobby Douglas, the quarterback. Especially when Michael Vick came along, I'd always heard about oh well this guy bobby douglas for the bears rushed for almost a thousand yards and i just thought oh that's really odd and i i never seen a clip of him or knew anything about him and so my head i had always pictured this like tiny really quick dude who couldn't throw really well at all and just they they ran a lot with him. and then i actually started learning about bobby douglas and uh holy cow jeff you know the, the quarterbacks today from the time they're 12 13 years old they go to these quarterback camps they learn how to read coverages at a young age they play seven on seven all the time like the quarterbacks now it's it's phenomenal how much they know i feel like if you put bobby douglas into today's era the sky's the limit for this guy right. he's six four he's a lefty he claims he could throw the ball 90 yards <laughs> <laughs> and he also claims if i really wanted to i could probably throw it 100 if i really got into it and you hear that statement, and you're just like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Because I'm not sure if there's much. I, I think people have gotten close to throwing it 80 yards mm. on a field, like non-wind dated. When you watch the tape on it, Jeffy has a cannon for an arm. It's effortless. There was one play in particular. He's rolling to his left. He's at his own 40-yard line. And it's not necessarily on the run, but he doesn't set his feet. He just kind of flicks it, and it lands five yards in the end zone, a bullet, just on the money to his receiver. And so that's that's a 60-yard throw right there 
just kind of on the run, just kind of flicking it. Mm. And so could he throw it 90 yards? I find that really hard to believe. But could he throw it 75, 80, no problem? I, I kind of believe that he could. I think if this guy was around today and say, now he went to Kansas, which I don't know anything about Kansas football in the late 60s, but for most of my lifetime, Kansas football hasn't been great. Right. But say say this guy coming out now, you know, he goes to Alabama or he goes somewhere and he really learns how to play the position, I feel like this guy's a top three pick, if not a number one pick. He is so talented. That's just the throwing stuff, Jeff. You watch this guy run, he is, at times, he looks like clearly the best athlete on the field. Hmm. He's just making guys bounce off him because he's 6'4", about 220. And he is just juking guys. He's trucking guys. It is unbelievable. And one of the reasons, well, there's a lot of reasons. He doesn't have a whole lot of success, but you know, he takes hits. Guy took hits. And about every clip I saw, he's breaking off a 5, 10, 15-yard run, but he's also getting drilled. He was notorious for just losing his helmet all the time. He's got all the physical traits he would want in the quarterback. Right. Very quick rocket arm tough but just doesn't really know where he's going with the football overthrew everyone all the time never had a good completion percentage really struggled to spot the open receivers in fact they considered at that time changing the helmet color to orange for him (laughs) to help him help him spot the receivers better and during this time they do actually change the c on the side of the helmet used to be all white yeah they do they do put a little orange on the outside of it not related so we think but who knows gail sayers would talk about i don't want to use the term like not intelligent but really struggled with picking up plays in the nfl which a lot of guys do think of how many careers would have been different if they just could have picked things up better but Sayers would say they had, uh, you know, this is back when they're running the play into the huddle. And so whoever came in with the play, the play would be like written out, handwritten out on a piece of paper. So he could just read it to the guys in the huddle. Oh, no. <laughs> and and like uh, what, what I find fascinating is what they would do is eventually they just made a little kind of wristband for him that would have the play calls sure. on it. Which is what you see today. today. You see that all the time, especially like the college and high school level. That's what they do. This this guy is just unbelievable. They're running triple option stuff with him. And it's just, they said too, he would struggle to make the pitch. And so oftentimes he just keeps it. And that's a big reason he rushed for almost 1,000 yards. But this guy is just, he's, he's unbelievably talented. He can't probably mentally put it together as a quarterback. But a lot of his contemporaries of the day, they would say, if they just would have switched them to safety or tight end or linebacker, this guy would have been an all-pro at any one of those positions. And when I look at the tape of him, I totally believe that because he is one of the best athletes on the field. And I think a play that kind of really sums up his career is uh, they're playing the Redskins. They go down and tie it 15-all, and they've got to kick the extra point for the win. The snap is low. It looks like it's a wet day. The snap gets underneath Douglas. He's the holder. So Douglas runs back 10 yards, grabs a ball, rolls to his left, just and just kind of whips it, throws it to Dick Buttkiss in the end zone for the, <laughs> I guess at the time was the one-point conversion. Right. And Jeff, I, I got to send you this clip. It's hilarious. Buttkiss catches it. Yeah, and he and just kind of, Just kind of, no, just like kind of holds it out to yeah. his opponent standing there, and the opponent slaps it out of his hand. Like, it's it's just so funny. Like, it's so, I'm like, is that Buttkiss catching it? It's like, yeah, it was Buttkiss you catching it. You give $10 to figure out what Buttkiss said to that guy too, right? Oh my gosh, it was just is so funny, um, and he, he never he never is successful as a quarterback. So in '75, he gets traded to the Chargers. That's pretty much end of his football career. 
Late in the 70s, though, uh, Bill Veck, the owner of the White Sox, gets the idea to sign this guy because he's so popular in Chicago. They send him to the minor leagues. He hasn't pitched in 20-some years, but he's got a rocket arm. Right. In three appearances, he has 16 walks, doesn't strike anyone out. Like, he just <laughs> basically walks everyone because he has no control. No control. Which, if, I guess, that is kind of matches his football career throwing. Checks uh, out. Yeah, but I, I, I truly believe if if he grew up in today with how talented he was, if he would have gotten QB-specific coaching early on, like this guy would be a, a top draft pick and really fun to watch clips of him because he looks like a bigger Steve Young out there. Mm, like almost, almost a bigger, probably faster Steve Young with a better arm. It obviously didn't have like a Steve powerful. Young's mental ability. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, that's that's Bobby Douglas. I had no idea kind of the story behind him. I just knew he was the guy that ran for a bunch of yards. That's funny. All right, so the next guy is Dick Gordon. And Whiteout, you know, he played most of his career in the 60s, but he really had a good year in the early 70s. And I, you got him as well, so go ahead and talk about Dick Gordon. I find him really interesting in the sense that when you think of very, very successful wide receivers today, you consider a lot of them divas. Right. And I, I don't consider Dick Gordon a diva at all, but I think a lot of people at the time would have considered him a pain in the butt. He's a very talented guy. Like you said, in, in the 60s, doesn't do a whole lot, but in 70 and 71, back-to-back Pro Bowl years. 71 especially, or sorry, 70 especially, a monster year. 71 catches, 1,000 yards, 13 touchdowns. Mm. Like, this guy is a stud. It seems like... His coaches and Hallis and management, they didn't appreciate his antics. And really, the only thing I could find that you would hold against him, and I wouldn't hold this against him, is he dressed very uh, colorfully. And he was really calling out the way players weren't justly compensated at the time. And you and I were talking before we started recording that in the 60s and 70s, guys are still working jobs in the offseason. Right. Which blows my mind. I never would have thought that, but they're still not making the money yet. And the, one of the big reasons is the franchises have so much control over these players. Like, it's really hard for a player to trade teams if not traded. Almost impossible. Here's a quote from Jim Dooley. He says, A few of our players are more interested in their hairstyles and modeling clothes than they are playing football. Mm. And that's in, that's in reference to Gordon. And here is a... Tribune article. Uh, get a load of his outfit, Jeff. This guy would be a fan favorite today. Right, sure. Underneath his red velvet cape, Dick Gordon held a stylish ebony walking cane. He tapped it against the bottom of his flared red pants, turned and began walking across the soldier field ash. The cane made Gordon's dazzling ensemble. Con- <laughs> And so this is just a guy like he he loved he did he loved playing football. He'd always talk about how much he loved playing football. He just wanted to be justly compensated right. for it. And so he he holds out. And so you know when I hear guys hold out in football, I never hold it against them. They're putting their bodies on the line. Right. They should try and make every cent that they can. The season begins and the Chargers sign him. And then for whatever reason, he just he never does. And I don't know if he had the same type of issues with the Chargers, but. And he gets a lot of credit for helping the players get more rights as the 70s go on and into the 80s. And eventually, when full free agency hits in the early 90s, he's one of the guys that was 
really pushing this right away. Players need to be treated more fairly and justified yeah. more fairly. That's cool. And he even he even re- he refers to the players as he says, "We are treated like serfs," mm-hmm. which is since as a history guy, I love the terminology, but just seems like a very very bright guy that was willing to call out the league for some of the growing BS and. Yeah, he probably paid the price for it with his career, but really fascinating guy. And I, unfortunately, you don't hear much about him in terms of uh, Bears history. No, but has one of the very few thousand-yard receiving seasons, so he'll always well, at least have that. He has the last one until the mid-90s, Nuts, which is crazy. Yes, and that's broken by two people in the same year. But we'll get to that in a couple episodes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my first guy is Doug Buffone, linebacker. Uh, this guy plays from 66 to 79, and he, when he retired, he had the most games played by a Chicago Bear. So that's pretty cool. Like, look, he played on a lot of bad teams, 10 losing seasons at some point, and he's quoted, I found this quote, I thought to myself that if we're going to lose, let's at least lose together. Which, hmm. like, I, I, I like that sentiment. Like, you know what, we're not very good, but, like, let's not – complain to each other like you know let's be a brotherhood and a real team and i've been on those teams you know you and i both played sports you know for a good Mm -hmm. chunk of our life and you've been on teams that are good and that like each other you've been on teams that are good but you don't really like each other and then on the flip of it and i've been on some bad teams that didn't like each other it's miserable and then i've been on some bad teams that you kind of still like each other and it is tolerable and so i kind of like that sentiment that like he kind of, he was probably a guy that kept the locker room together and and it was really well liked and you know he kind of seems like an all-around performer he had 24 interceptions as a linebacker it's still the record for bears linebackers uh, so that's pretty cool and then was actually a pretty good pass rusher and again it's so unfortunate that the nfl doesn't go back and count stats retroactively they have the game film i don't know why they don't do it but the sacks were an official stat started in 1982. There's a report that in the late 60s, he had 18 sacks oh, wow. in one season, which would be a franchise record. Buckus has a year, apparently, where he's got 18 in official sacks. So, you know, it'd be tied for it. But again, like this guy can rush the passer and he's good in pass coverage. But it's not a guy that you hear a lot about. Tackles weren't an official stat back then, which also seems kind of weird. But if you go back and count them in the game film, He'd have over 1,200, which would be second only to Erlacher. Oh, wow. And so, you know, he, like, he's this tough guy. He's really consistent. You know, he didn't really miss games. Fans loved him. Just his fan favorite, you know. So he's, like, this really good player. Didn't rack up, you know, postseason awards or anything like that. But was just this really solid guy. Started a bunch. And uh, I think just kind of kept the units together through thick and thin, which I just I really like that kind of guy. Really cool guy. So he got he got to play alongside Butkus for how uh, how many years would he have? For a few. So he he started in '66, and so Butkus would have played through the early you know early '70s. I think '72. So played played next to him for quite a while. Your next guy is Jim Osborne, and this is a guy that I actually discovered a couple years ago when Windy City Gridiron did a like a fantasy draft of all-time Bears team. And I came across this article about him being this amazing pass rusher. And again, no official stacks, sacks record, so it kind of drives me nuts. But found out that he would have been like fourth in franchise history with career sacks at like over 80. So uh, mm-hmm. Jim Osborne, really great defensive tackle. What do you know about him? I, I fully admit going in, I had only heard the name once. 
and it was actually on, I was watching this program a while ago about the 85 Bears, and I'll get to that part later, but I, I really never heard of this guy. Because he's kind of, you know, he's he's in that kind of, I don't want to say dead space of the 70s, where he's a phenomenal player. And then by the time the early 80s roll around and the Bears really start rolling, you know, he's at the twilight part of his career. But seventh round pick in 1972, so kind of a guy that came out of nowhere. You alluded to the sacks. They think in 1976, again, these don't count, which seems, like you said, stupid because they have the videotape. But 15 sacks. Unreal. In 1976 for an interior lineman, yeah. that's, that's Aaron Donald yeah. type numbers. Over, he had 81 and a half for his career, and how you talked about that puts him way up in franchise history. Man, I'm, I'm, I'm reading these numbers, and I'm just like, holy cow. And you know, he's not flashy, he's not a super quick necessarily, but he's just a really solid player that gets the job done. And extremely effective, and uh, he he's proud of the fact that he's one of the probably the only guy on the line that played in front of both Dick Butkus and Mike Singletary, two Hall of Fame sure. linebackers. And you know, think of the impact he probably had on parts of their career where you got that you know very effective guy in front of you who's probably taking up two blockers, which leaves you more space to do your job and. Just a phenomenal player and played his whole career in Chicago, 13 seasons, 186 games. Interviews I listened to, just very appreciative that he got to be a Bear. Uh, really loved playing for the fans of Chicago. He gave a, a lot of credit to Buddy Ryan for his career, and you know he retires in 84. They right. just won the division for the first time. That's where I heard his name for the first time, because they were talking, I think Hampton was talking, we won a division, and at the first time since 1960-whatever, Osborne is just crying. He's crying because he's so happy because he had never done that in his career. And I just thought, man, that's, that's the type of people you want in your franchise, like people who are willing to stick with it and... When you finally achieve something like that, it means so much to him. I immediately, that's why I, I picked this guy. So I remember his name from that program. I'm just like, I want to know more about this guy. And so it all makes sense. Now he was the, the only reason he wasn't a starter on that 84 team is, well, Dent comes in and that pushes Hampton more in. And then, so Osborne isn't a starter, but you know he's still a great player and was a tax accountant in the offseason because, <laughs> like, like you said, he wasn't getting paid that much. Right. And, Right, you know, when 85 rolls around, he didn't watch any of the games until the Super Bowl. Like, he really tried to distance himself from the team. He said, my time is done. And it's just a super interesting guy, just a super great guy. Very charitable while he was playing and also after. But uh, someone I'm really thankful that I got to learn about. Yeah, I completely agree. I really liked learning about this guy myself when I, we were doing that draft. And, and he's definitely a guy you feel for for missing out on the 85 season. But, you know, he's, he's quoted as saying, you know, hey, I don't regret my decision. And I think he had a really cool quote that said um, something effective. It took a lot of blood, sweat, and tears to get to that Super Bowl. And part of that blood, sweat, and tears was mine. And so he kind of yeah, had some ownership quote. into that 85 season anyway, because it is, it really is building. I think that's one of the things that I'm realizing as we're going through this is, is these cycles of building up for championship runs. And, you know, people talk about that a lot, but they're, they're really, you do start to see that when you're looking at Bears history of these cycles. And it's just so unfortunate that he couldn't hold on for one more year or was a year younger or whatever, right? Uh, my next guy is uh, another defensive tackle, Wally Chambers, absolute stud. I see this guy 
a lot like Tommy Harris. Chambers, Chai Price. Yeah, absolutely. Rookie in 1973, comes out hair on fire. He wins Defensive Rookie of the Year. He's in the Pro Bowl 73, 75, and 76. He's a second-team All-Pro in 74 and 75 and a first-team All-Pro in 76. So, I mean, he this guy is just killing it. You know, he, he's just tearing stuff up. He's big. He's six foot six, and he just sounds like he's very intimidating. As we kind of dug in a little more, found out that his uh, teammates would call him the Admiral because he was always in the ice tub because he was constantly, like, icing his body or, or getting, you know, treatment on his body because he was just wrecked. Eighth overall pick out of Eastern Kentucky. Again, one of those players that we've talked about throughout this series where a mate, like super high heights, amazingly good player, but has a leg injury. He just came back and he wasn't quite the same. They have a contract issue in 77 because, you know, he's not playing up to the standards that he was before the knee injury. And so they don't want to pay him. He thinks he deserves it. And so he requests a trade. Bears shop him around, and even though he has this knee surgery, the Bears are able to get a first-round draft pick. So they get the Buccaneers' first-round draft pick in 1978, which happens to be a very high pick, and that high pick is used for Dan Hampton. Oh, wow. So kind of a crazy thing. This Chambers is one of those guys, I don't think he's a household name for a lot of fans, but on a per-season basis, I think he's one of the best defensive linemen in team history. On a 7-7 seven and seven ball club, so 1976, the Bears were you know just kind of an average team. He's honored as the first-team All-Pro, and then he wins the Defensive Player of the Year by the United Press International. Again, there's a lot of different organizations that award a lot of these awards through the years, but someone said he this is the best defensive player in the league. And it was on a 500 team. team. Right, yeah. So so that doesn't happen very often. Normally, defensive players of the year is like, oh, he's like the best defensive player on the best defense, you know, and this team went really far. You know, it's, it's usually not this guy on a middling ball club. Uh, the next guy that I had was Doug Plank. Doug Plank, the reason why I wanted to put up Doug Plank more than anything is that Bears fans just need to know <laughs> who this guy is because he's very important for – uh, one very specific reason, right? So, so Plank's a, uh, he's a 12th round draft pick. So he's really late draft pick, but he actually comes in and starts right away as a rookie. So he starts all 14 games as a rookie. He was the first rookie ever at the time to lead the Bears in tackles. He was one of the hitmen uh, with Gary Fensick, who we'll get to in a second. And he just his reputation is just as a big hitter, heavy hitter. And what I what I find him really interesting is that. He was sort of a hybrid strong safety linebacker. You know, right now that's becoming pretty popular as a guy that's like, you know, really athletic guy who you put nominally as the strong safety, but he really is he's more of this like hybrid type of guy. That's kind of reading about Plank, that's what that reminds me of. But his skill set allowed Buddy Ryan to create this defense. And the defense became called the 46 defense. And what I think confusing for a lot of fans is that everybody knows what a 4-3 defense is and everybody knows what a 3-4 defense is. And then you hear this 
four six defense and i i think maybe thinks people like oh so what there were like four down linemen and like six linebackers or you know six guys yeah something like at the linebacker level with one deep safety or like you know you get this like conjure this image in your mind of like maybe like two press corners and like guys like just everybody's kind of at the line no (laughs) 46 defense was named after doug plank's jersey number number 46 Buddy Ryan creates this defense basically because it's all about the skill set of Doug Plank. And the 46 defense, even though Doug Plank retires in 82, is really the foundation of what eventually leads to those great years of the 85 and 86 defenses that net the Bears the Super Bowl. So Bears fans, just if nothing else, you got to know that Doug Plank is is the inspiration for the 46 defense from Buddy Ryan. That's that's awesome. And, you know, I, I one of those, I admit, for a long time, I thought the 46 was somehow formation-based. But actually, once I learned that it was based on this guy, I'm like, oh, Doug Plank, I got to learn more about him. And so another very interesting Bears safety. Well, you got the other one, uh, the more famous one. That's Gary Fensick. Uh, What do you know about him? I want to start off by saying we weren't around. We weren't old enough to watch and remember 85. But I think growing up in the 90s and 2000s, you and I would, we would eat up anything 85 Bears related. We wanted to learn about it, know about it, to kind of make up for not being there. And so... I remember seeing videos or seeing these interviews with all these legendary 85 Bears, and you got these guys are intense and they're kind of crazy. You know, guys like Hampton and McMichael and McMahon, kind of larger than life guys. And then you would see Gary Fensick, and I'd just be like, this guy doesn't really seem like he fits. Oh, is he an then, assistant coach? <laughs> like, is he, is he the team accountant or something? Right, like, exactly. does he do their taxes? But then, like, you learn about him. He's maybe, if not the hardest hitting safety in the league, like one of the hardest hitting safeties. In the league, that's his reputation. Almost, he has a bit of reputation of a dirty player too. And certainly, the the hits that they, all of those guys did back then, wouldn't fly today, and for good reason. Really interesting guy, tenth round pick of the Dolphins. Tenth hmm. round out of football powerhouse Yale <laughs> was a was a wide receiver at Yale. So you know he's smart, and I think that really matters for his career. But he's playing in the Dolphins, probably not going to make the team. He ruptures a lung. In his last preseason game, so the Dolphins release him, and he's kind of somewhat local guy, and so the Bears pick him up, and kind of the rest is history. He has a, a long career with the Bears, 38 career picks, two Pro Bowls, one first team All Pro, and you know you, when we talk about that 46 defense, and you talk about Buddy Ryan, the guys have to be smart, right? And he, he, he's a big hitter, and he's athletic. He's six one, about 200. I, I watched one hit he had. It's on Jimmy Robinson against the Giants in 1977. And so we make the playoffs that year, and this is during a key game. 10, 15 years ago, we would have celebrated that hit. Now we know it's not that great, but I mean, he puts this guy on his back, and this guy is seeing stars. You can tell when he kind of is just laying there, he's not really there. But that's the type of player that this guy was, and that's the game at that time. And right. he was one of the captains on that defense for a long time, and also... For his position, how smart he had to be and how he had to kind of read and react to stuff on the fly, there's a lot of his teammates on those Bears teams that thought he's playing some of his best football in 84 and 85 and 86, and he didn't get quite the attention then because of, well, all the superstars on that defense, but for a position that required knowing exactly where to be and when to be there, he was phenomenal, and 
some stuff I love about him on the side. Uh, well, in 85, he was voted the cheapest of the cheap shot artists by those peers in the NFL. <laughs> Found that humorous. He dated Playboy Playmate models, which, much respect. <laughs> Liked to ride his bike around Chicago, and he ran with the Bulls in Pamplona. So just seems like a super cool, interesting guy. Very honest, kind of outspoken type guy. Would get on his teammates, I guess, especially in the late 70s, early 80s, when they weren't as good as he thought they should have been. And actually, it was Jim Osborne who pulled him aside and said, hey, we're starting to get some young bucks in here now who are really good. you got to lead these guys. And so that kind of put him more on a path mm. of really helping everyone learn and understand Buddy Ryan's defense because if you could not understand that defense, Jeff, you could not play for Buddy Ryan. Right. That's awesome. Yeah, I like I like him a lot. And he, whenever you see an interview with him, you're always like, wait, is this guy like a historian talking about football or did he play? <laughs> like he's so – you know, well-spoken and he's just kind of fascinating. And yeah, I didn't know the part about the Playboy models. So that's, that's pretty interesting. Uh, my last guy, um, I think that everybody's heard of him. Hmm. Okay. Uh, he goes by the name of Walter Payton and he's the best football player to ever play for the Chicago Bears. I feel like I could stop there, but let's list some stuff. Five-time first-team All-Pro, three-time second-team All-Pro. NFL MVP in 1977. <laughs> I mean, what more do you want to say? He made the Hall of Fame in 1993. Number 34 is retired. No one will ever wear that number again for a very good reason. Even if they ever decide to unretire numbers, they're not unretiring 34. He's called Sweetness. Amazing nickname. All-time nickname. If you were making an all-time nickname team, you would lead with Sweetness. It's a great nickname. He was called that because he had somewhat of a soft voice. But really, I think it, it, there's no better way to describe his running style and his ability. And I, I don't know about you, Matt, but when I watch those old highlights, one thing I'm thinking is like, oh, my God, this guy's amazing. The other thing I'm thinking is put that ball away. <laughs> like he's his ball security was not like uh, what you see today. He's kind of got it all around. I always find, find that fascinating. Well, they, they say his hands were like vice grip and that he could get away with carrying that football like that because I guess his hands were really big and also really strong. Right, right. So 75, his, he's drafted as a rookie, a bit of a disappointment. He shares carries, only averages 3.1 yards per carry, missed uh, the only game of his career. But, I mean – okay yeah not a great rookie year but he comes back as a sophomore and he just breaks out he's first team all pro in 76 and in 77 77 that mvp year 2121 yards from scrimmage it's ridiculous let's remember this is a 14 game schedule so imagine what he puts up with another two games he also we should also mention he had a pretty good arm he had eight career touchdown passes. Part of it helps when you're the focal point and everybody rushes towards you. He's, he was able to complete eight touchdown passes, which is which is honestly kind of ridiculous. Top 2,000 yards from scrimmage from 83 to 85. So three straight years. You know, in the 80s, again, we're talking about the 70s, but you know, this guy's just racking up yardage everywhere. Breaks Jim Brown's all-time rushing record in the 80s. I have kind of wondered about like just how much further could he have pushed this record if he hadn't played in a couple of strike shortened seasons mm-hmm. and if he wouldn't have started his career with 14 game schedules then I kind of went back and looked and you can make a case that there were 15 games 
that he could have added to his career. And so like basically another full season and imagine how much further he would have pushed that. And I, I mean, Emmett Smith probably doesn't catch him. So he's probably still leading if, if he was able to do that, which I, I just think is, you know, it's one of those, what ifs and who cares doesn't matter, but he retired as the all time leader. And I, I just don't know what more you can say about the guy, except I think maybe the most impressive thing that the league has said about him is that they changed the man of the year award to the Walter Payton man of the year. Mm-hmm. If you, if a player wins that award, they wear a patch on their jersey indicating that they won that award. It's the, like the NFL says, this is our most important award. And they named it after Walter Payton. Like, it's a big deal. <laughs> like, I, I don't know. I don't know how else more to say it, but he's he's the best football player in Bears history. I feel so unlucky that he came before we really got to see him. And you can watch... You can watch all the highlights you want, and I've I've read at least three or four Walter Payton books. Just I mean, he's up there with Michael Jordan. Yep. In terms of Chicago sports legends, I mean, he's that good. Uh, a lot of people say Payton is not only the best running back of all time, but he could be arguably the best football player of all time. And it always strikes me about him is he's not that big, but you just watch him play. He looks like the strongest, fastest, quickest guy on the field. And the rest of my Bears fandom, I get to see someone similar to him. Right. I mean, we won't, but, like, if we get someone, <laughs> well, you know what yeah. I mean? Like, it, let's get in the neighborhood, right? Because right now, yeah. it's Erlacher. That's the best yeah. player that we've seen his entire career. And Erlacher's yep. great. And he's a top ten player in Bears history, in my opinion. Yeah, I would love to see more of those. <laughs> you know, like, it would be nice if maybe it's a quarterback, but... Um, Anyway, let's just cut it there. We're going to need to take a quick break, but on the other side of this, we're going to get into categories that Walter Payton could probably win all of them, but we're going to add in some other stuff too. So stick with us and we'll be right back. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to the Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Matt. So let's get into the categories. And so for a lot of these, I basically had like Walter Payton as the answer. And then I have, okay, if it's not Walter Payton, who is it? But some of these are just going to be straight up Walter. And then we'll open it up to some other people. So let's start off with your favorite random stat of the decade. I got two. I just couldn't choose. The Bears offense in the early 70s was inconsistent and not great. In 1970, they averaged 3.1 yards per carry, which probably tells me you should stop running the ball, but they couldn't throw it much better either. Right. In in 1972, Jeff, they completed 78 passes. (laughs) That's two games for a lot of teams today. That's just, that's unbelievably bad. Mine's actually the same year, but it's it's kind of flipping it. It, it. It's the same stat, but it's a little different. So Bobby Douglas leads the team in rushing in 1972 with 968 yards. And like that in and of itself to me is the my favorite random stat of the decade. But 
he passed for only 1,246 that same mm-hmm. year. So he almost rushes for more than he passes for, which I think is ridiculous. Uh, in 1973, Bobby Douglas almost did it again. He almost led the team in rushing. He had 525, but uh, a guy by the name of Carl Garrett late leads the team in rushing with 655. But you look at the you know every year who the leading rusher was, and you just see this Bobby Douglas stick out in 72. I just think it's the weirdest, funniest thing. But best player, it's obviously Peyton. If it's not, if you're going to go one step beyond Peyton, uh, no, I won't. Okay. I will not go beyond. No, right. I'm not, not for that. Not for that category. For that category. Some of these categories, I'll play your game, but <laughs> I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that for that one. All right, it's so Peyton I, all the way. I think the second best player of the decade is Wally Chambers. I think he was just incredibly impressive. It's, it's really sad that he had a knee injury that really shortened his career. But mm-hmm. most exciting player. So you're not going to let me pick Peyton. Well, here. again, it's Peyton. But if it's not Peyton, who do you think it might be? You know, as as comical as it might be, I think it's. Bobby Douglas, and hear me out. No, I think that's my answer too. Those early '70s teams aren't good, right? You know, when you're tuning into a Bears game, you're probably not going to win. This guy is is a human highlight reel, good and bad. He's going to overthrow the receiver by 20 yards, but he might break off a 60 yard run. So I say Bobby Douglas. Yeah, no, I think it's the same. And like you said, the guy that says he can throw 90 yards, that's an exciting player. So. What about favorite player? Again, it's Peyton, but let's say it's Peyton first. Who's your second favorite player? I I love the guys that are solid, stick around. And this guy is more than solid, Jim Osborne. Yeah. Jeff, he had 15 sacks in the season. Yeah. It's Jim Osborne. Yeah, so for me, I had Jim Osborne or Doug Buffone. Mm -hmm. Just two guys. They're the same guys. And interestingly enough, when each guy retired, they were tied for franchise record with most games played. Mm, wow. So that to me kind of puts we're we're kind of thinking of this the same way. You had Jim Osborne to research, I had Doug Buffone, so I was, you know, I had Doug Buffone listed, but they're both the right answer and and because they're just kind of those backbone type guys that you want to see on your team and so yeah, absolutely one of those two guys. What about best season? Well, if it's not Peyton's 77, I might just go with Osborne's 15 oh, sack yeah. campaign. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I just put, I just, I, I couldn't come up with anything else. Peyton seventy seven is just too much for me to ignore. Mm-hmm. He had eighteen hundred and seventy two yards rushing, two hundred and sixty nine receiving, and he led the league with sixteen touchdowns. That's again fourteen game schedule. <laughs> it's like that's unbelievable. So sixteen game schedule, he's clearing two thousand without an issue. So I think that's amazing. And that was the year that they made the wild card. And I, I have to imagine that it's basically just all Peyton. Just adds, that is one guy carrying a team to to the playoffs. At least one guy carrying the offense to the playoffs. So kind of an amazing feat there. Best game. I don't think that there's another option. It's got to no, be. No, there's not. It's got to be week 10, 1977. Peyton rushes for 275 yards against the Vikings on 40 carries. And he has he has what the he has a cold or the flu that day. Yeah. I, so here's the crazy thing though, Matt. Do you know what the final score of that game was? Um, I have no idea. Well, so he rushed for 275 yards. I mean, you you would you would hope you would win. Well, they won, but like you know, they scored a bunch of touchdowns, right? No. What was the score? Ten to seven. No way. Yeah, no, possible? it doesn't make any sense. That's not. Are you sure you got that right? No, I 100 percent have it right. <laughs> it's ten to seven. 
Well, it doesn't make any sense. I, 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 we gotta go back and watch this game at some point. We gotta find the full game footage and figure out what the hell happened because it doesn't make any sense. And you would just think, two hundred seventy-five yards. He's breaking long ones. You know, he always oh, broke a sixty-yard touchdown and an eighty-yard touchdown. That's why he had so many yards. No, he did not break touchdowns. He was just grinding absolute unbelievable effort for two hundred seventy-five yards in a ten-to-seven victory. This that blows is unbelievable. My mind. Yeah, so that's, to me, no question, that's the best game. Uh, what about the best moment, play, or thing that happened? And I've got a curveball here for you, so I, I'm going to let you go first. Okay. Well, I got 1979. It's the last week. The Bears have a chance, a sliver of a chance to make the playoffs. They have to win their last game. They have to win their last game by a lot. And they need, th- you know, it's one of those things where three or four different scenarios need to happen. This team needs sure. to beat this team, and this right. team needs to beat this team. They destroy the Rams, 42-6. to six. Also, a subplot of this is Peyton is being challenged by Otis O.J. Anderson for the NFC rushing title. So not only do the Bears need to win, they need to win, I think, by, it says here, at least 34 points. Peyton has to outrush Anderson by 100-some yards, and then they need all those other things to happen. And so the Bears win 42-6. to It's Doug Buffon's last game. Peyton wins the rushing title. And so the game's over, and they look at the TV, and, oh, crap, the, the Redskins are winning 17 to nothing. That's not good. Like, Dallas has to come back and win. So Dallas comes back, wins 35-34, to huh. and that gets the Bears into the playoffs. And so I bet a real exciting day for the Bears players and the Bears fans. Wow, that's a good story. So mine's, again, it's a curveball, but I think the best thing that happened was that George Hallis hires Jim Finks in 1974 mm. to be the general manager. And Good call. the Bears really start restocking that roster starting in 75 with the choice of Peyton. And so Finks is with the team until 82. And interestingly enough, he resigns after Hallis hires Dicka without telling him. Hmm. So he kind of like resigns. In I did not know that part of the story. Yeah. So he's in the Hall of Fame for his work in Chicago, but also he built the great Vikings teams. Mm, okay. And so he so, somehow, Hallis lures him out of semi-retirement, I guess, after he stepped away from the Vikings to, to run this team. The 80s don't happen without Jim Finks. So that that's just, I think that's just a fact. So I found one tidbit that I did not know about him. He was actually in line to be the new NFL commissioner, but some of the newer owners didn't really like him or didn't want him to be. They wanted more say. And so even though he was the person that was put forward by this uh, NFL owners committee of who they wanted to be the next commissioner, the newer owners nominated Paul Tagliabue. So the league votes on it and it's dead even. Then they come back and they decide, well, how about we compromise? We'll let Tagliabu be the commissioner and Finks can be in charge of football operations. And so they came to come to this agreement, but Finks is like, no, no, thank you. Like, I'm not going to lose this battle and report to this guy. So he just turns it down and just retires. So hmm. like, so this is, he's a Hall of Famer, and this, so he's, but he's kind of like an all-time football guy. And to me, it's just a great move by Hallis to bring this guy in. And I, again, the 80s teams don't happen without him. I wish we had Finks Jr. running the team right now. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, who knows what the lineage is, but I, I, yeah, I would take another Jim Finks. 
Best roster move. Speaking of GM, what do you think the best roster move was of the decade? Well, it's kind of cheating, but I do what I want to do. The best roster move is technically not a roster move, but it's bringing in Buddy Ryan yeah, to the okay. defense. Because the 80s, Jeff, uh, the Bears obviously had talent in the 80s for the Super Bowl run, but that defense, Jeff, that defense is what they are known for, and I don't think it happens like that if they don't have Buddy Ryan. Yeah, that's interesting. I wondered if we were going to bring up Buddy Ryan at all because he does start coaching in the late 70s. Um, so that's interesting that you were able to get him into this episode. My best roster move, I, I already spoiled it. I mentioned it earlier. They traded an injured Wally Chambers to Tampa Bay. It became the fourth overall selection in the next draft. They took Dane Hampton, who went on to go to the Hall of Fame. It's a, again, one of those masterful moves. It just like works out, one, to get a high draft pick, and two, to select the right player with it. So that's my best roster move. Believe it or not, Matt, I did not have a worst roster move this time, but you said you did. What would you come up with? I did. Uh, at one point, we traded a first-round pick for a QB named Mike Phipps. Who's Mike Phipps? No one cares. He was terrible. He had QB <laughs> ratings of 69 and 40. So we traded a first round pick for a QB that was well below average, even for the time. Yeah, that's pretty bad. I did not. That's bad. I did not find that information when I was rolling through the draft history, and that's probably why. Is because you trade your first round draft pick, you don't show up on the draft boards. All right, let's do favorite what if. My what if is, you know, the Bears aren't bad after Peyton gets there, but imagine the Bears from 76 on without Peyton. Like, <laughs> oh God, they're you have a bad what if. <laughs> well, no, my, my, my what if is, you know, the first five, six years of Peyton's career, uh, wasted isn't the right word, but he doesn't have the help around him. Yeah, look at how dominant. Look at how dominant he is once they get help around him, and he's in his later years then. So my what if is, what if we had more talent around Peyton, arguably the greatest bear, arguably one of the greatest football players of all time, what if we had more talent around him right away? Hmm. That's my what if. Or like if he was five years younger. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, then that would get him out of the 14 years, 14 game schedules too. Yeah, that's interesting. I For me, this is one of those classic bears what ifs, and that's what if the bears win the coin toss in the 1970 draft? and they basically finish with the same record as the Steelers. They have a coin flip for who's going to be first pick, who's going to be second pick. Steelers win the coin flip. They draft Terry Bradshaw. Now, look, I'm not the biggest Terry Bradshaw fan. I I, I don't think he's a transcendent talent uh, necessarily. I don't think he was like a greatest of all time quarterback. But I think people, when they're like, oh, he wasn't good, eh, come on. Like, that, he was he was really good uh, in his own right. I understand that they had really good defense and all that kind of stuff. But Jared Bradshaw was a really good quarterback. Mm-hmm. You know, one, one, what happens if the Bears win that coin toss? Do they become better? Two, what if they get him and their team is so bad that he just doesn't do very much. He's like an Archie Manning, you know, where he's just like a good quarterback mm. on a bad team. Yeah. Uh, would he still have the like post career that he's had where he's on TV all the time? And then my third question is that would I like him <laughs> because he was a bear? Because I honestly find Terry Bradshaw really annoying. Yeah. I'm not the hugest fan of Bradshaw myself. I, I like the fact that he has fun doing his job, but I think there's a lot of those guys, former players or former coaches, that 
they aren't really good analysts because they don't really say anything. Right, right, and that's him. Yeah. All right, so let's do the who would you take from this decade to try to help the 2006 Bears uh, go over the top and win a Super Bowl? I, the answer is probably Peyton, but do you have an answer that's not Peyton? Well, I figured he wouldn't let me pick Peyton, so I went Jim Osborne because I'm, I like to picture Tommy Harris and Jim Osborne right next to each other on the Bears D-line. Yeah, I'm actually stealing your answer from previous episodes, and I'm going to go with Gary Fensick because I mm. think that he would be interesting in that secondary. And, you know, you've made the argument a lot with secondary players to try to replace Mike Brown in that game. And I think Fensick's kind of an all-time leader, and he's a really smart guy, and he'd be able to step in there and help win that Super Bowl. But what about the 2020 roster? Who from this decade do you would you most want to step into the 2020 roster? I'm going to put Bobby Douglas on the 2020 roster, not to be quarterback, but to be that Taysom Hill. Yeah, he's a Taysom player. Hill guy. <laughs> yes, I thought, thought because Nagy, Nagy's very creative. Right. He's going to have Bobby Douglas will be in there nine to ten plays a game. It's just and I, with how athletic he was and the skills he had, uh, Nagy would get the most out of it. Uh, that's really funny. It's funny that you're trying to find a guy for like eight to ten plays a game um, because this decade's <laughs> yeah. so rough. Uh, I'm, I'm actually, I'm actually filling my strong safety spot because we don't, you know, as of this recording in late April, Bears starting strong safety is probably going to be like Dion Bush, unless, uh, Steven Denmark steps up or something like that. But Doug Plank coming in a strong safety, kind of being that hybrid role would be really interesting to see what Chuck Pagano could do with him. And I think that could just make that defense just that much better if you had a guy like him step up. So he was my roster choice for this current roster. I didn't tell you this before, but we had this next question. It was all about, I had identified three modern era bears, but you keep not listening to me and taking back whoever you want. So I'm going to change. Yes, I do. I'm changing the question because you just won't conform. You know, as a teacher, I expect more out of you, but we're going to change the question. So the question now is who from the modern bears would have the most impact on this decade? I'm going to go with uh, Alshon Jeffrey. <laughs> okay. And here's why, because once Dick Gordon leaves, only once does a receiver even get to 50 catches. Most of the time, the numbers are in the 20s and 30s. And so they had a real... Uh, the, the cupboard was bare at the wide receiver position for the Bears during this decade. And think if there was some bigger targets on the outside, yep. maybe, Peyton, maybe Peyton runs for even more yards than he already runs for. So I'm going with... Going with Alshon. So it's fascinating. I'm going to agree with your argument, and then I'm going to destroy it. One, uh, let me start off by saying I don't think that there's a wrong answer unless you said, like, Matt Forte, <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, because this this decade just is terrible. I'm going to say it's Allen Robinson because I think Allen Robinson is the best receiver the Bears have had in a really long time. He's reliable, and I think if you give this terrible offense – one other viable threat it opens everything up it allows Peyton to do even more so we're on the same page now you want to take Alshon back to the 1970s Alshon and his soft tissue issues couldn't last in the 2010s (laughs) but you want to take him back in the 1970s where they have no idea what they're doing with soft tissue issues (laughs) oh well you I was not assuming the injury aspect of players would carry over I assumed they were going to have a clean bill of health check (laughs) You assumed wrong. Okay, so <laughs> our last question, my favorite, who won the decade? It's the rest of the NFC Central because the Bears are not great. <laughs> 
Yeah, I, that's that's a really funny answer. I mean, obviously, it's Walter Payton winning an MVP on a not that great team, and just being able to establish yourself as one of the greatest in the seventies. You know, just through the seventies, one of the greatest running backs already through the seventies. I think is just amazing. He's the first player in this new wave of building this franchise back up. He is the first guy to take that step to try to put the Bears back into prominence. So for me, Walter Payton wins the decade. It's it's obviously Payton, and when you think of the Bears' history, and I imagine being a Bears fan at that time, he was maybe the one reason to tune in on Sundays is to see, hey, what's, what's this guy going to do? Is he going to rush for 100 yards today? Is he going to rush for 200 yards today? And who knows, but that's probably what kept people coming back in the set. Yep, absolutely. So, well, that's it. That's the 1970s. Join us next time as we cover the 1980s. Don't forget to keep the conversation going on Twitter. You can find me at Gridironborn. And until next time, thanks for listening and bear down.